Well, welcome everyone, Genesis House. Let's uh, stand and read the Word of God. Beginning in John 17, verse 20. This is uh, Jesus' prayer to the Father. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may, be, they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love which you have loved me with may be in them, and I in them. Lord, these verses are very powerful in application, but kind of difficult to understand at first read. A lot of repetition and a lot of maybe confusion, uh, at the beginning, Lord, but I pray that through your Spirit that we'd unpack these and make sense of this. When you prayed it, your words are very specific and had an absolute agenda and its purpose. And we pray that we discover that for ourselves. Because this prayer is for us, Lord. This isn't for the disciples. This wasn't for you. This is for us sitting in this church. So we take these words seriously. And if you're praying those the night before your crucifixion, and you're praying this is your final prayer for all believers in the future, this must be important for us to understand. So we do want to understand this, and I pray you help me discover the truth in the passage and that we are encouraged where we need to be encouraged and changed where we need to be changed. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin our, we begin our passage, we see Jesus in the midst of prayer. And earlier that night, he prayed for himself, and he had just recently prayed for his disciples. With the crucifixion now just hours away, and the mission he had come for almost complete, there was a final group of people that he wanted to bring forth to, to his father in petition. And we see these people described in verse 20. He says, I do not ask on the behalf of these alone, which is a reference to his disciples, but for those who also believe in me through their word. Notice the future tense, those who believe in me through their word. There's going to be a, a group of people coming forth after the crucifixion that are going to come to faith through the disciples and the apostles' teaching. This, of course, was future believers through the generations in the Christian era. And this is a prayer for you and I. So Jesus here in verse 20 is praying for us. Now, we saw over the course of the last couple of weeks that Jesus' primary area of concern for the disciples was their protection, protection from any uh, delusion or anything that would cause them to move away from the gospel in terms of proclaiming truth. We also saw Jesus' prayer for the, the disciples in terms of sanctification, that they'd be made, made holy through the scriptures and set apart for God's work. But we notice in this passage a different concern for us. When he prayed for you and I in the night before his crucifixion, there was a primary concern that Jesus wanted us to have and know. And what was that concern? Well, he had a desire for us to have unity. Unity in the church. We pick this up three times in the passage. Look at me at verse 21. Look at 21. He says, 
that they, you and I, may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. We see it again in verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. We see it again in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. You notice here that there's this huge concern for Jesus Christ in terms of how you and I operate in the church body in terms of unity. He mentions it three times in these three verses. So one may ask, well, what are the areas of unity that we're to, what Jesus is praying for? But well, we're going to get to that in one second. And I'm going to suggest there's three areas. But for now, I just want to make one important observation and address one thing. And that is, notice the kind of unity that we're to have. Because if you were to say, well, what unity is God looking for in us? What is that to look like? Well, he spells it out in every single verse here. Every verse he describes it in this way. It's a unity that's to be modeled after the way the Father and Jesus relate to one another. It's a unity modeled after Jesus' own relationship to the Father. It's in every single verse. We'll give you an example in verse 21. He says, That they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Again in verse 22, The glory which you have given me I give to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. The model for our unity, church, is to be reflective, a mirror image of the relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. Now when you think of that kind of unity, that's perfect unity in, in, in harmony, and it's, there's no distinctions. Like they are, they are completely united in every front with the way they think and the way they act. Now that gives us a standard by which we're to think of within our church in terms of unity. So what are these areas? Well, I'm going to suggest three. These are the three areas in this passage that he wants us to be unified in. He wants us to be unified in truth. He wants us to be unified in love. And he wants us to be unified in purpose. Let's first look at unity and truth. And it's unity and truth concerning the identity, nature, and mission of Jesus Christ. In the key verses that we see this in are verses 21, 23, and 20. I think it's actually 25, not 26. We'll double check that in a second here. <laughs> but look at verse 21. You're going to notice the phrase, as you have sent me. Okay? Verse 21, he says, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I you, that they also believe in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You sent me. There's a belief that God sent Jesus to the earth. Verse 23, he says, it's a repetition of the same phrase, I in them and you in me, that they may perfect in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. And again, in verse 25, actually, not 26, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. This phrase, you sent me, you sent me, you sent me, were to be unified in this truth that God sent Jesus Christ to the world with a particular mission. And as someone who came from heaven, he had a certain nature and identity found in God. So that means then, church, there's certain spiritual realities and truths that we must accept within the Christianity to, in order for us to be unified. There's certain truths that you and I have to adopt. 
and believe to be true. We have no, we have no division in these areas. And these are two key areas. Jesus on salvation and Jesus on sin and morality. We're to be unified in these two areas. So that means when Jesus came to earth and he taught this, we are to be unified in this belief. That Jesus has the power and authority to give, forgive people of sin. We have to be unified in that, Mark chapter 2. We believe and have the, Jesus had the power and authority to grant eternal life. John 3.14 We believe in the exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the only way. John 14.6 We believe in the substitutionary atonement that he had to die for us in order for us to reconcile to God. John 1.29 We have to believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone with no religious works or rituals. No baptism saves us, no communion saves us, no sacraments of the church saves us, nothing. It's through grace and faith. John 3, 5. We have to believe in the exclusive claim that Jesus was actually God. John 8, 58. We're also to be unified in what Jesus taught with regards to sin and morality. His, his vision, or not his vision, his desire and necessity for us to be, have fidelity in marriage. Matthew chapter 5. That we should have no unforgiveness or bitterness or resentment as part of our character. Matthew 6, 15. That we should have no anger towards a brother or sister and we should not slander anybody. Matthew 5. That as men and women, we're not to lust after others. Matthew 5. And there's many other categories we could talk about. You see, Jesus is saying, if you're going to believe that God sent me, that means that I came with a certain identity, a certain purpose, a certain nature, a certain mission. And you have to embrace these truths for why I was sent to the world. So you, 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 you unify yourselves in these areas of salvation and things regarding morality and sin. It's this belief and unity in these truths that separate Christianity from every religion in the world. And any religion or individual person who adds to this gospel or takes away from this gospel truths are not Christians or are walking a very slippery slope with God if they started off as Christians and started changing the way they view the issues of morality and salvation. I call this the Jesus plus gospel and the Jesus minus gospel. All right. And uh, we actually have examples of both of these in scriptures. Let me introduce you to a Jesus plus gospel church that was in desperate, uh, a desperate situation and Paul warns him severely. The Galatian church. If you read the book of Galatians, you're going to see that Paul makes a huge deal about something that's going on in there because these Galatians are Gentiles. They're just like you and I. They're, they're non-Jewish. They've come to faith believing in salvation through Christ, through grace alone, and by faith alone, the very things we just spoke about. What's happened is Jewish missionaries have come into the church, and they're teaching, you are Christians, and we believe that it's through faith in Christ that you're a Christian, but you need to add something to your gospel. You forgot about the Mosaic Law. In order to be genuine Christians, you need to also be circumcised and obey Moses' law, and if you don't do that, you're not genuine Christians. 
Paul finds out about this and frantically writes a letter to say, are you guys insane for adopting this belief? He says, and I'll quote it, verse, verse by, word by word, he says in chapter 1-8, anyone who preaches a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Cursed. You're cursed if you have a Jesus plus gospel. Chapter 5, verse 4, he's speaking to the Christians, you have been severed from Christ, those of you who are seeking to be justified by the law. My purpose is not to bring up any churches and stuff like that and, and go through all the religions of the world and say which ones do this and which ones don't. But let's just say this. If you have a church that teaches or an individual that teaches that you get right with God by any ritual or any morality of behavior apart from grace and faith in Jesus Christ, they are to be accursed. That's a false gospel. The second church I want to introduce you to is one in Jude. Jude is uh, Jesus' um, brother. And Jude has come to faith later in life. When he was growing up with Jesus, he didn't actually believe his own brother was the Messiah. And he actually mocked him and made fun of him. And later on, he comes to faith, and, uh, which is awesome to see, that he actually, be weird to like, give your life to God, who's actually your brother. <laughs> Maybe that's why he had a problem with him so much when he made the claims that he did, right? But Jude makes this, he makes this comment in Jude 1.4. He says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Now the word of licentious means to basically live a life of immorality. So they come, this is the people that come into the church and they say, Yeah, you're saved by grace. We, we agree with this. But you don't have to live as if you're saved by grace. You can just bank on that grace and you can just live any immoral life you want to. And God embraces all these acts of immorality. And, you, and this is actually what it is to be part of being a Christian. So these people have crept in and they're teaching a, a loose life uh, in relationship to the grace that they've received. And they deny Jesus Christ. They're denying His Lordship, that He's a master in their lives. Now, this is someone who's taking away from the Gospel. They're taking away from the, the, the divinity of Jesus. They're taking away, again, the areas of salvation. They're denying he's Lord and Master. So they're changing the message of salvation. They're denying the fact that you have to live a life of morality in a relationship to Jesus. And so they're denying this aspect of holy living. I wish I could say that this isn't prevalent in our church, but I want to show you a video clip of a man who started off, I believe, as a genuine Christian and is an example of a genus, Jesus minus gospel or kind of guy who is now not a Christian. And he's in danger at this present time. If he was to die, he would not go to glory. And you need to watch this clip because this is a perfect example of someone living, turning the grace of God into licentiousness. His name is Rob Bell, and I want you to see this clip. Do you believe that, that this, this is an area where actually God's ahead of the church, that affirming um, same-sex partnerships is actually a God thing, and, and that we will eventually all get to see that in, in the course of time? I think it's time for the church to acknowledge that we have brothers and sisters who are gay, and want to share their life with someone. Mm -hmm. And this is a part of life in the modern world, and that's how it is. And the cultural consciousness has shifted. Mm -hmm. And that's, this is how the world is. 
And that what's happening for a lot of people is they want nothing to do with God and Jesus because they can't see beyond that particular issue. Now, this is, up to this point, there's been a lot of agreement between you guys, but I suspect you take a different view on mm. this. And well, can I ask some questions? Because what I don't know is the grounding for that. Yeah. That's saying that I find interesting. Yeah. So would you say, I don't think that a guy having sex with a guy is sinful? I would begin with, I am for monogamy, I am for fidelity, I am for commitment. And I think the world needs more of that. And I'm, I think that promiscuity is dangerous, and promiscuity is destructive. And some people are gay and want to share their life with someone. And they should be able to. And that's how the world is, and we should affirm that. And we should affirm monogamy, fidelity, and commitment, both gay and straight. Is that a yes or a no? As if you believe it, so what I'm trying to get in hand on is, do you think it's sinful but we need to lump it because the world's changed? Or do you think it's not sinful? And if so, do you think the Bible doesn't think it's sinful? Jesus didn't think it was sinful. That's, I'm not aware that Jesus mentions it. I think you have about five verses that can be read a number of different ways. And there's a large Christian tradition that sees this as there are scriptures that speak to this, but I don't think you can make an overwhelming case against I stopped it there because I mean we could go on for, this is a 12 minute video and so we could go on and on yeah that's just a two minute clip it's very intriguing right this is an example of a man who is not unified in the truth of the gospel message and does not believe in the nature mission and identity concerning Jesus like God sent him into the world I think all of us as a church in here can understand this and and we'd agree on that and I think uh, we are unified in that in those in that movement. If you're not, if you're not, then may this be a message of warning to you. So the question then is, if this is what it means to be unified, what do we do with all the denominations that exist today? What do we do with that? There's apparently in the evangelical church over 150 churches in the evangelical movement. Some would say, because of all the 150 churches that we have, that we are not unified in a way that Jesus is proud of. And in fact, some would say that uh, maybe this lack of unification is a way that so shows of offense to Christ. But my question to a person that holds this view would be simply this. If all these 150 denominations embrace the implicit truths we just discussed, do you think any of them will fail to make it to glory? If these 150 denominations believe in that Jesus, God was sent, or Jesus was sent to the world and embrace the implicit truths we just talked about, do you think they're going to fail to make it to glory? I don't think so. Let me ask you another question. First, this is a personal question to you. Do you know anyone in Genesis House right now that holds the exact same theological position it would answer a, a passage from Scripture identically to the way you would in every area of Christian life. So I could interview every single one of you in the area of finances, or anything like that, and, and or parenting, or marriage, and I'm going to get the exact view. Not a chance. Are you now saying that everyone else is not going to heaven except for you? <laughs> you see... What God is looking for is unification 
in the primary issues that make one right with God and how you live ethically before him. That's important, church, to understand this. This is really important to get through our heads because if the answer is no to these questions, that we don't have to be unified in these ways, that should teach us something in how we relate to those who don't hold the same opinions as others in the, in the church that have been secondary issues. Issues like, for example, infant baptism, predestination, um, women, as, uh, and women in ministry, uh, speaking in tongues, you know, and the, and the list goes on. And, and, and times, right? And times. It's important to remember, church, that if, the, if Jesus accepts them because of their embrace of these unified truths, then we need to as well. We need to as well. We're going to be in heaven, church, interlocked in arms with people from the Alliance denomination. We're going to be interlocked with people from the Pentecostal church, the Evangelical church, the Baptist church, the Dutch Reformed church, the Mennonite church, and so on and so forth. So the question is, why don't we do it now if it's going to be that way in glory? But our problem is often that we treat other denominations and Christians as if they're not genuine believers, if they don't hold the same opinion on the secondary issues as we do. And this sets us up for division in the church. But again, it's important to remember if Christ accepts them, we need to as well. So we need to extend grace to people who have different positions on these secondary issues to us. Now, we can't control the way other churches relate to us at Genesis House. Right? So there might be churches in Okotoks, I don't know if there are, but there might be that think that we're heretical in our teaching or would never show up here because we, we just, just uh, have no idea how to preach the Word of God and understand it. And that's, that's, but that's between them and God. May that never be said of us in the way we relate to others in our community. I like what John MacArthur actually said about this. He wrote this in his, in his commentary. He says, All true Christians are spiritually united by regeneration in their belief that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ, and their commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture. That's what we want to be unified in and known for, church. Let's look at the second area now of unity that Jesus is praying for for us. He wants us to be united in love. United in love. Look at verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. Verse 26, And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Notice that the, how we are, what this love is to look like, in terms of how we're to relate to one another. It's identical to that of the Father's love for Christ and His love for us. That means then that this love is to be self-sacrificial at its core with no expectation of return from one another. I like what Joe Dongel says about this. See, these commentators, they think these things through and they, and they word things really well, better than, better than I could in many instances. Dongel says this, this is the kind of love that will run deeper than any boundary set by organizational, national, ethnic, gender, or economic identities. It's the kind of love that will set itself up squarely against any injustice or any hatred. Isn't that good? It's that kind of love. It expects nothing in return because it can set itself up against any injustice or hatred. 
What separates the world's love from our love is this. They can't set themselves up squarely against any injustice or hatred when they're treated wrongly because they expect something in return. A non-Christian's life always wants something back from someone, and that's the limitation for how far they can love. And Jesus is saying, I don't want any part of this. You should be able to love others. And my expectation of you is you love others with no expectation in return. The world can love self-sacrificially. They can do it, but they can't do it for very long unless they get something back. And we're to be different in that. A great model for this love was in the early church in Acts. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2? This is what happened in the church there. Again, this is all these organizational and sort of genders and ethnic groups coming together to, to worship in Jerusalem. They receive the Holy Spirit. And look at the result of the church of the growth here. Or the growth of the church, I should say. It says, day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple. They're breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. These people are unified in their commitment to one another and their way they're treating one another. The sad thing was, church, is that by Acts chapter 6, there already are problems creeping up in this church. There's already problems. Remember what happened when the Hellenistic widows and the, and the Hebrew widows had an issue? What was going on there? The church is growing. There's lots of widows. And what happens is they have the native Hebrew Jerusalem widows and the Greek background um, Hellenistic widows in the same church. And there's a complaint going forward because the um, native Hebrews are getting more food rations than the Hellenistic widows, and they're feeling like there's prejudice being set up against them. Because there's favoritism in the church being shown to the native Hebrews and the Greek uh, uh, Hebrew, or the Greek Jews, widow, sorry, <laughs> the Greek widows are being overlooked. And so there's this, this favoritism going on, this prejudice taking place, and it's causing dissension, it's creating division in the church. And thankfully, the apostles took action and resolved the division that was occurring and, and basically put that to an end. But it's important, church, to see how fast this can come in ours. If it can happen in the early church, and they're described in this way in chapter 246, and then by chapter 6, there's, there's already divisions occurring, you can see how fast this can happen for us. So the question is, how does this happen? How does unity get so easily destroyed in the area of love? Well, I'd suggest there's one main reason. Simply put, division occurs when we start developing a sense of superiority over another one, over another. When you and I start to see ourselves as superior to someone else in the area of education, in the area of finances, you feel like, well, I'm, I'm in a much better position than you, and so I'm going to judge you for your lack of financial responsibility. In areas of knowledge, even knowledge in the scriptures, the positions we hold in, in the workforce or any other areas of life, in our times and talents. Whenever we see ourselves as superior to someone else, we can start destroying that relationship and become unloving because we're, 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 we end up with a critical spirit towards the other person. When we no longer see people within the Christian community as being equal to ourselves, in terms of how Jesus views them, we end up in trouble. So we're quick to form judgments. We live with the spirit of comparison. We have a hard time accepting other people's idiosyncrasies and their personalities and differences of opinions and beliefs. 
And so we fail to take care of that person the way you would other people that you actually hold in the same esteem as you. All of this is the breeding grounds for division. Now what's crazy, church, is the scriptures have something very strong to say if we have that going through our heads. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 24-26. But God is... But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You know what the crazy thing about this passage is, church? If you and I elevate ourselves above someone else in this room, as being more important to them and have a superior complex, you actually think that you're bringing yourself up in comparison to them. Paul is saying you're actually hurting yourself in the body of Christ. So not only are you not elevating yourself, you're actually diminishing yourself and the body of Christ. If one member, one member suffers, all the members suffer. So as soon as you go to like, well, I'm not going to take care of their needs or talk to them or I'm going to care about them or I'm not going to help them I'm gonna, you know, and so on and so forth, what you're actually doing is hurting yourself and the whole church. But in our minds, because we're so selfish by nature, we don't even thinking about the impact that's going to have in our community here. We're only thinking about how we've just made ourselves feel better about ourselves and by elevating ourselves. Nothing breeds division more than this kind of attitude. We need to come alongside people and love them in this way, not neglect us and to divide us. So what would be a great model? What would be the way of getting that through our, our heads about how to live this out? How do, we, how do we have the same mind and care for one another? Thank goodness is answered in Philippians 2, 1-9. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. Now watch how this is played out. United in Spirit intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. For this reason also God highly exalted him. Have this attitude that everyone in this church is more important than you yourself. The question is, how are we doing? When I call out your name, I'm not singling you out, okay? I need to ask this question to every single one of you, including myself, but I'm just going to... Just do this for the sake of purpose. But I mean, um, Laurel, I mean, do you consider Kevin more important than yourself? Good answer. Right? Jordan, do you consider Rob more important than yourself? No, Rob, Rob, Yes, I do. Sure. Right? Blake, do you consider Janice more important than yourself? Probably. <laughs> Right? I mean, of course you're going to say that. So then the question, that, right, because we're, we're publicly exposed and we have to answer the question, but do we live it out? 
after church every day, when, when, the, when it comes to lunch, do we run to certain people in the church because we don't want to talk to so-and-so and so-and-so and have communication? Because we feel like more comfortable with certain people, and we, or maybe we think we're superior to X, Y, and Z, and so we don't go and hang out with them? I mean, seriously, church, like, let's, let's be honest with this. Certain people you'd rather have in your house than others for dinner, hang out with at the park, because you don't want to put up with their idiosyncrasies or you just don't like them or prefer them. Jesus says you're actually hurting the body of Christ if you don't treat them better than you would, or so you don't treat them and regard them as more important than yourself. I mean, this is, this is where the rubber hits the road. We're to be unified in love. It's the same love for God and the, Jesus Christ and the Father, that perfect love and harmony that we're to have for one another. That's the kind of love, that's the model. We can't forget that from this passage. And he's so important to him that he's praying the night before his crucifixion. The only prayer for us as believers, the only prayer is unity in this area. That's how important it is. How about in marriage? How about in marriage? Do you consider your spouse more important than yourself? And you're all going to say yes, but how's it really going behind closed doors? If I had to videotape all of our marriages for 30 days and play it to the church, would I really see that being played out? Would I really see in, your, in our marriages that the husband is treating the wife for 30 days more important than himself? Would we see the wife treating the husband as more important than themselves? Honestly. Again, this, we read these like they're just tongue-in-cheek, but these are real important questions to ask. <coughs> we have to take these seriously, church. And we have to be careful not to speak out against others' inadequacies. And we, don't, we can't compare ourselves to others in terms of how we're doing in relationship to them. We can't judge ourselves better than someone else to get a little ego boost so we feel better about ourselves. So take these scriptures to heart. That's the world's way of living. The world's way of living is to point out inadequacies and, and separate themselves from people they don't care about. This is the way they try to love. This is the way they try to create unity. This is not to be part of the church. This is why Jesus says, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now why would this matter? Why does this matter so much to God? Because he wants us to be unified in purpose. The way we love one another in truth and the way we love each other in love is going to have a critical impact in the world. Look at verse 21. That they may all be sent, sorry, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also would be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The, this, our unity is key for the world, our testimony to the world. Look at verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. Again, the whole purpose of this is that we have, uh, the way we love one another is going to be a testimony to the world in terms of an evangelistic outreach. See, I didn't even show you this before, but in Acts 2, 46 and 47, the same passage we looked, 
Look what the result was of their love and devotion to one another in the, in the church. It says, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Why were they adding to the number? And why was the church growing in Acts? Because they were watching them um, with one mind worship God, breaking bread from house to house, which is a community of relationships, and taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And God's having favor on them, and it's having an impact on the world around them. Why would it impact them? Because the world doesn't experience this. A, a world doesn't experience love that doesn't um, hold, keep record of wrongs. A world doesn't experience uh, this kind of unity where if you uh, hurt someone, that uh, the, they won't try to punish you back. They're not united in truth. Truth is whatever you want to make it. And Jesus is saying, I'm praying for these, these Christians, for you and I at Dennis' house, to be united in these things because it's going to have a testimony in the community that you live. And again, you may not have thought of this, but let's say you're treating your wife a certain way or someone else in this church a certain way that's not pleasing to the Lord. You're not even thinking again that I'm going to affect maybe the way the world views me in this community. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. If you, do, if you don't take this seriously, there is an evangelistic uh, effect that this could have, and so therefore we want you to make this right. And unfortunately, this is often opposite in the church, right? I mean, how many times have we had conversations with people where they've heard about others in the church and they don't want to be part of joining a church because of the, all the infighting? All you guys do is fight. You can't agree on anything and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to join a hypocritical church and so on and so forth. Well, again, may that never be said of Genesis House. What's the lessons we can take away from this? To be united in truth, Christians must embrace all that Jesus taught with regards to salvation and sin. To be united in truth, Christians must embrace all that Jesus taught with regards to salvation and sin. There's no plus gospel or no minus gospel in our church. Don't ever tell someone it's, you get right with Jesus by baptism, communion, you know, praying five times a day, walking around a certain temple or whatever, you know going to Mecca, whatever, whatever it's going to be, doing penance, that's not how you get right with God. There's no Jesus plus gospel. And there's no Jesus minus gospel either. You don't minimize morality or ethics in this culture to try to make it your church inclusive to the claims of Christianity, like Rob Bell. Second lesson, to be united in truth, Christians do not have to agree on all secondary issues within the church and faith. Right? We don't have to be united in infant baptism, on predestination, and all these kind of other areas, end times, in order to be genuine Christians. If that was true, then none of us would be going to glory, because none of us, as we talked about earlier, have the exact same theological position on every single secondary issue in the scriptures. So therefore, since you don't know anybody, neither do I, that has exactly the same view as Christianity as you do in every issue, then you're not going to turn around and say they're not Christians. So therefore, we have to treat one another and give grace to one another in these areas. So again, to be united love, Christians must regard others within the body as more important. Sorry, <laughs> Christians do not have to agree on all secondary issues within the faith. Now here's a question. This, like, this is hard for me to accept, right? Because I'm actually one that wants unity in every single area in the secondary issues. Now, if Jesus was here in our church, do I think there is only one answer to these questions? Absolutely. If Jesus said, 
we, if he sat up front and we said, tell us your, what's the truth on predestination? What's the truth on infant baptism? What's the truth on women in ministry in the church? He would sit here and give you slam dunk after slam dunk after slam dunk and tell you this is the way it is. And we'd be like, okay, we're going that way. Right? There'd be, he wouldn't be like, well, I don't know. He can go either way on this thing. Right? He would, there'd be a definite answer from him. But for whatever reason, he extends grace to us and he understands that we're all ignorant in certain areas of faith. I don't mean ignorant stupid, I just mean ignorant and we just don't know. So if these, matters don't, if these issues don't seem to matter to Christ in terms of bringing us into glory, maybe we should be more accepting of others when they hold a different opinion in other areas as well that are secondary to the unity of the church. Third lesson, to be united in love... Christians must regard others within the body as more important than themselves, no matter the circumstance. We're to be net in love, no matter the circumstance. And that's going to be shown by the way we regard one another as more important than ourselves. Um, again, I don't know, I won't go too much into detail on that. I think it's pretty self-explanatory in the sermon. And finally, to be united in purpose, Christians need to strive for unity and truth and love in order to be an effective witness in the world. To be united in purpose, Christians need to strive for unity and truth and love in order to be an effective witness in the world. We are going to go into a time of communion first before we go into time of discussion. I want to. I want. This is an important area of. Christian uh, faith, and I do want to talk about this, but I think the Lord's probably been speaking to us now in certain areas of our lives. I don't want to miss this opportunity to have a time of prayer and, and, and fellowship around the communion table. So we will do communion first, then have a time of discussion. But I want to like make this an opportunity for you to get things right with the Lord, if you've been convicted in any area, or even relationship within this church. Maybe it's a relationship in your marriage, and you recognize that you haven't regarded the other spouse as more important than yourself. Maybe it's an area between you and someone else in this church right now. Like you've, you know, for the, you've been attending here for one year, two years, three years, but you've always seen yourself just slightly superior to the other person in this church for whatever reason you've come to terms with. Maybe you fail to meet the needs of somebody in this church because of that sense of superiority. So you know they're in trouble, but you'd rather help someone else because that's an issue. And so you're thinking, well, I got two choices, the person I prefer, the person I don't prefer, so I'm going to help the person I prefer. Maybe there's seeds of bitterness or unforgiveness that we have to deal with right now between each other. and we just, You've kept them to yourselves and we don't know. And I encourage you, as we, if we remember the Lord's table, that Christ died for all these things. The cross was to, to break us from these sins. And He came with no sense of superiority. Although he exists in the form of God, he did not consider that something to take into consideration. He still emptied himself of that, of that form and became a, a person and a man and humbled himself to the point of the cross, right? That's a bad paraphrase of Philippians. I should have memorized it, but you get the idea. He exists in the form of God, but he didn't take that, he didn't let that divinity stop him from becoming a man and dying for us. If anybody understood fairness, or lack of fairness, it would be him. And he still died. Because of his love for us and his desire for truth. 
So let's bow our heads, uh, spend time just confessing anything we need to to the Lord and dealing with this one-on-one. -on -one. Your hearts and your minds will be right and ready to take communion.